Trapped in the murder house, you've finally located the exit. Standing between you and the door is the murderer, complete with Halloween mask and large butcher knife. There's no way you can get around him. But then you think, what if I mentally convert this entire location into precise five-foot squares? Then all I have to do is wait for my initiative turn and move in such a way that I do not draw opportunity attacks. Live, you think. Survive. This is what I think is going to be a pretty quick podcast, specifically on the topic of theater of the mind versus battle maps. Something I've been thinking about a lot, something that was very important to me when I started in with 5th edition, but over time have gradually moved back to using battle maps almost exclusively. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. Right, I just rolled initiative for me and the killer, and unfortunately I lost, so I'm probably not going to make it out of the murder house. Unlike a lot of gamers my age, I never got into gridded combat until 3rd edition. We played what is now termed theater of the mind. I didn't know the etymology of that phrase, but I googled it, and apparently it came about as a means to describe radio plays. For my friends and I, the theater of the mind approach was D&D. When things got very complicated, we would maybe draw a quick sketch. But then D&D's 3rd edition had a number of rules that only worked well with a grid and minis. 4th edition was even more anchored in the grid system. I burned out hard on 4th edition and only came back to 5e because it facilitated non-gridded theater-of-the-mind combat. There's a lot of nuance in that decision, some of it not useful for this podcast, but the core of my preference was that Theater of the Mind allowed for free-flowing plots unconstrained by my ability to predict the nature of the ground my party would fight upon. And I stuck with it for the first campaign I ran in 5e. Everything I thought would happen, did. Faster combat, less prep time, focus on what the character is doing rather than the minis, confusion about where things are, a lot of backtracking, statements like, I thought there were only four, not eight of them. I thought I was behind him. I thought we were closer. The solve, oddly, was that I got good at building battle maps for the virtual tabletop. I could do it fast. Some of that is investment in the right kind of material from the Roll20 marketplace, to be honest. I migrated back to gridded mini-combat, and it's been good. I kind of feel like I'm talking about getting back together with an ex. A lot of the things that bothered me before didn't bother me this time. I mean, why should a pretty map with dynamic lighting affect the immersion of my game? To answer that, I need to pop out of my experience in gaming and into my experience, gulp, building PowerPoint presentations for the day job. If you put a chart and numbers up on the screen, people will read them and assume they represent something important. Why wouldn't they? Except sometimes they're just illustrative, and the most important thing happening is what I am saying versus what they are seeing. In those cases, the chart is actually a distraction, and the same holds true for D&D encounters. Emphasize what is most important. For large, complex combats, a grid might be the only way to keep things straight. For simple, fast engagements, theater of the mind is a more effective means to keep things moving. Neither extreme is the point of decisioning, though. It's those middle scenarios. When it's neither simple nor overly complex, then what's the best way to manage it? Due to a player absence, I split the party. 
and had the fighter and ranger deal with a ghoul incursion north of where the party and the PCs were holed up in the town of Red Road. In real life, I had a lot of tough things happening, and there had been precious little time to do any prep. So I focused on three things, all of these things occurring inside my head. One, ghouls were the enemy for this encounter. Not the ghouls from the Monster Manual, but rather the ghouls from Tome of Beasts by Kobold Press. Smart, fast, and part of an organized society. That's all I noted for this. When the time came, I flipped open the book to the two types of ghouls I was using. Second, the location was an old shack, and the hook was that an old son of Red Road had been run out of town for demon worshipping in the past. And this, this old shack, was where he lived. It would be tiny with ill-kept land. Again, that was about all I determined. Finally, third, names. I poked through the list in Xanathar's Guide and wrote down some names that struck my fancy. During the story, as I used them, I would note who the names applied to and check them off. When the time came, I ran at Theater of the Mind and focused on compelling descriptions. I talked about silhouettes in the dark, pinpoints of red coal for eyes. In the moment, I thought that one of the ghoul types was more feral, and so they wore helmets that hid their mouths until it was time to fight. Then they worked a mechanism to open the faceplate and reveal their unhinged jaws open wide with black teeth and a purple tongue. I described their armor as ancient in design, with the symbol of a demon etched on the front and back. I know you should do these things regardless of the presence of a pretty map in minis, but... Know that the distraction of a map fights for the player's attention. What I noted is that the players tended to describe what their players were doing rather than say, I want to make a perception check. They described how they attacked, how they moved across the ground. There were many clarifying questions, mostly about how far away they were from various things. The shack, each other, the next opponent. And herein lies the core downside to theater of the mind. But I think there is a solve for that and it can be found in the Fate RPG. Fate system is as far from a miniatures game as you can get, but it recognizes that we mere mortals need a way to keep things straight in our head. It offers a simple solution that I think can easily port into 5th edition, zones. Per the Fate Core rulebook, a zone is an abstract representation of physical space. It's close enough that you can interact directly with someone, Zones should give a tactile sense of the environment, but at the point where you need something more than a cocktail napkin to lay it out, you're getting too complicated. And that's the essential idea. Cocktail napkin sketches. Rather than elaborate five-foot square grids, using something no more detailed than a cocktail napkin sketch, you can address any of the confusion that plagues theater of the mind execution. In this way, everyone can see approximately where they are, but there is no expectation that all the information is on the sketch. No one is going to look to the sketch to describe the room or set the tone of the encounter. My plan is to use both rudimentary sketches and inspirational art pieces to augment my auditory description. When a cadre of gnolls shows up, I can easily place the virtual mini on the sketch in the correct number and appropriate zone, but I will likely make up generic markers instead. Why? Because again, I don't want the focus to be on the mini-images. The sole function of the sketch is to clarify relative positioning, and that's it. It's to avoid confusion about when things like opportunity attacks might occur, or what a character can easily interact with. I imagine in the beginning I will get a lot of how-many-feet questions, because players want to know if they can get up to something in one move, or also establish the size of certain spell effects. 
and I will be obliging as best I can. But consider this interaction, and consider if it works as part of a story or part of a game. There is a knoll menacing the party. The rogue character counts the squares and sees they are 15 feet away. They move their mini up to attack. It's a hit, but not enough to kill the knoll. Then they spend a bonus action to disengage and use the remainder of their movement to back their mini off. That's both legitimate and represents the benefit of playing a rogue. But to my ear, it's one step removed from the emotion of the moment. And it's focused on the minis. It's a subtle difference, but in theater of the mind, the focus is within the character's point of view. They have to clarify, can I dart in, attack, and then dart back out? Or, if they attack without considering their retreat, they have to then ask, and perhaps they find out that no, they needed all their movement to attack. For sure, this system undercuts the benefits of having 30 versus 25 feet of movement. It's just not sensitive enough to really capture that accurately. For that reason, there are players and groups that would find that too much of a trade-off. And hey, if you're using gridded combat and loving it, then awesome, don't change a thing. My point is that if your combats feel like miniature games, or too much like miniature games, where character and immersion are missing, a theater of the mind approach is worth consideration, at least just for a trial run. I've now run two sessions without gridded combat, and it's been useful. I described the breakout session with Bren and Constantine fighting some ghouls. Because there were only two players, we even got away without using any visual aids. The second session was with four players bouncing around the town of Red Road and dealing with various micro-situations. This is an interesting case study for why you need to be able to run Theater of the Mind sometimes. I actually noticed Grayson doing this as a DM back when I was a player in his game. He used grids for the bigger planned combats, but for simple off-the-cuff or random encounters, he used Theater of the Mind. In our session, the PCs were trying to collect various villagers so they could move them to a central location. They were infected with a ghoul sickness, and the fear was that if they turned, they could create a lot of trouble spread out. The encounters, some of which devolved into combats, were fast, unpredictable, and numerous. Not only would we never have covered as much ground, I believe that had I used prepped battle mats, it would have changed the tone of each encounter. We're all trained to respond to a battle map as a call to arms. I think when players see a map, they presume it must lead to combat. Otherwise, why would the DM have bothered to put out a map and minis in the first place? The next game session will cover a larger combat, and I plan to break out the cocktail napkin approach. I have at least two players who excel at tactics and might not love this method. Their feedback on this will be crucial to how we proceed moving forward. It's important when you make big changes like this that you're polling your group and not making that decision in a vacuum. So that's it. Quick podcast. I don't take this one lightly, though. It's a foundational shift in how I run. I imagine ultimately I'll be using a hybrid ranging from pure theater of the mind to the cocktail napkin approach to an actual gridded map. The more tools in the toolbox, the better, I always say. Which of course is an exaggeration. Imagine only ever saying that one sentence over and over again. Madness. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell everyone you know especially if they think D&D is a thinly veiled satanic cult. You can follow me on Twitter at anatomycamp or email me at phil at campaignanatomy.com. And if you're listening because someone recommended the podcast because they believe that you believe D&D is a thinly veiled satanic cult, may I say, 
Also, thanks for listening.